Welcome to Shield of the Republic, a podcast sponsored by the Bulwark and the Miller Center of Public Affairs at the University of Virginia, and dedicated to the proposition articulated by Walter Lippmann during World War II that a strong and balanced foreign policy is the indispensable shield of our democratic republic. I'm Eric Edelman, counselor at the Center for Strategic and Budgetary Assessments, a Bulwark contributor, and a non-resident fellow at the Miller Center, and I am rejoined by my wandering partner in this enterprise, Elliot Cohen, the Robert E. Osgood Professor of Strategy at the Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies and the Arlie Burke Chair in Strategy at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Elliot, welcome back from your wanderings. Well, uh, thank you. I'll, uh, I'll be a little bit mysterious about it, uh, other than to say I was eating lots of pierogi, plotchki, and charlotkas. But more about that later. More about that later. Our special guest today is an old friend and colleague, Steve Sestanovich. Uh, full disclosure, he is my Cornell classmate, but also has a, a PhD from Harvard, so he's connected to both me and Elliot. He is the George F. Kennan Senior Fellow for Russia and Eurasian Studies at the Center on the, for the Council on Foreign Relations and the Shelby Cullum Davis Professor at SEPA at Columbia University. Uh, he has a distinguished government career as a member of the policy planning staff during the Reagan administration, a senior director at the NSC and the Reagan administration, and the ambassador at large for the NIS and the former state, the former Soviet Union uh, in the Clinton administration, and is the author of the excellent book, Maximalist America in the World, From Truman to Obama. Steve, welcome to Shield of the Republic. It's a pleasure. So we are... Uh, gathering the three of us in the aftermath of uh, one of the odder events in recent Russian history, which is the Prigozhin mutiny, the 48-hour mutiny that appeared on the verge of creating a huge crisis, perhaps a civil war in Russia, but then ended with a whimper. So, Steve, what the hell happened? <laughs> well, uh, one of the stranger uh, episodes is your description and probably an understatement. Um, what happened uh, is that the leader of a paramilitary group, a private military company called Wagner in Russia, who was an old associate of Putin's uh, and somebody who had uh, made a large contribution to the a war effort against Ukraine, uh, decided that his feud with the, with the general staff was something he couldn't abide any longer and decided to uh, go nuclear, so to speak. Uh, he announced that he was rejecting uh, the pressures that had been put on him by the generals to uh, essentially disband uh, his group and was calling for, as he had in the past, uh, uh, for them to be drawn and quartered in uh, Red Square. What followed from this was a couple of days that your listeners have surely got sort of vaguely in mind, uh, in which this uh, the leader of Wagner, uh, Mr. Prigozhin, launched a... Uh, what seemed like it was going to be a, uh, you know, an attack on Moscow. And then in the course of Saturday, uh, called it off after Putin uh, denounced him as a traitor, 
and after President Lukashenko in Belarus cooked up a deal that allowed him to bring some of his people to Belarus for a kind of gracious uh, exile. Uh, since then, all parties have been sort of standing down in the sense that Putin has uh, apparently dismissed the idea of pressing charges against Prigozhin. Uh, his people are going to be welcome in Belarus. Uh, President Lukashenko has made that clear today. And Prigozhin himself has been softening some of the critiques that he made uh, of the war effort, uh, including some pretty uh, broad swipes at Putin himself. Now, you know, who came out ahead in this? Uh, I would say Prigozhin was the big loser. Uh, he had a lot going for him at the start of this. He had a pretty strong hand in many respects. He's a rich insider, uh, had a loyal army at his uh, command, uh, an international presence through the activities of the Wagner Group through the Middle East and, um, and Africa. He has some claim to military heroics. He's useful to Putin. And in the start of this, what he added were some interesting populist cards. He said the war was based on lies, uh, that Ukraine was not, and NATO were not threatening Russia. The army was corrupt. Putin was manipulated by Ukrainian and other oligarchs and so forth. So he kind of took an ardent militant nationalism and combined it with Navalny reformism and could have made, I think, quite a lot out of that. But he uh, moved way too quickly, let himself get caught up in a very, very rapid pace on Saturday when, at just the moment where he should have been slowing down, should not have been racing to Moscow, but should have instead been making Putin sweat, trying to collect allies, trying to see how he could turn uh, this novel situation and all the attention that he was getting and all the influence that he had to his advantage. Uh, Putin, by contrast, I think uh, was pretty effective um, in slowing things down. He had a fast-moving crisis. His big goal had to be to keep it from uh, turning into uh, violence. He wanted to avoid the shooting that would signal the start of civil war with unforeseeable consequences. Uh, and in the course of the uh, of Saturday, uh, he negotiated this off-ramp for Prigozhin. I mean, his, his approach all day on Saturday was, give me the gun, big guy. And, uh, and that seems to have diffused the situation. We can talk a lot about where um, Russia may be headed, Putin's uh, power position and so forth. But on Saturday, he was kind of staring down the barrel of a gun and he got past it. So I think we have to say Putin uh, managed to uh, manage the pace of events better than Prigozhin, 
managed to come out still able to present himself as the leader of the country with lots and lots of problems. That's a long answer to your question, Eric. That's a great answer, but I got a lot of questions. I, I suspect Elliot does too. Sure. Just to fill in a little bit of backstory. So Wagner is what we in the, you know, in the United States would call a private military company, something a little bit on the order of Blackwater in the sense that it recruits former Russian military, particularly special forces, but not exclusively. But unlike in the United States, it exists in a kind of legal vacuum uh, because it's not uh, registered uh, in Russia as a legal entity. Uh, There's a lot of confusion in the constitution and the laws of Russia about their laws against mercenaryism in Russia, but somehow Wagner has not fallen afoul of that there. And I, by the way, I want to say, you know, everything I know about Wagner, I learned from your Columbia University uh, colleague, uh, Kimberly Martin, who's written extensively about this. It lives in this sort of legal vacuum and it appears to have, at least in in its origin, have had some sponsorship or patronage from the GRU, the Russian Military Intelligence Service. Sorry for interrupting, but Putin has now openly said that they were on the payroll of the Russian government. And, you know, the uh, Wagner training camps were right next to the Spetsnaz Right training camps, which which are part of GRU. So I mean, it was it was always kind of a, f- a fraud that this wasn't, you know, sort of a deniable ar- arm of the Russian government. This is the business model. <laughs> You're not describing some secret. This is how Prigozhin got rich, getting the Russian state to pay him a lot of money right. for services that uh, Putin and others found convenient. Uh, and uh, the fact that it was in a legal vacuum, uh, I hope this won't shock you too much, uh, <laughs> does not make it stand out in Russia today. Um, the many legal vacuums uh, exist in uh, Russian political economy and in uh, the institutions of the deep state because they serve a purpose as seen by uh, the leadership. And this arrangement uh, between the Wagner people and regular military was one that had all sorts of irritations for the general staff. But Putin until now has been prepared to say, you guys work it out. Uh, And, and, that was before it became unmanageable. Now, what is it that made it unmanageable? It was that Putin basically gave the green light to the general staff to go after Wagner and to try to regularize the relationship with it and to say, you guys have to sign up. You can't get the extra pay that we've been <laughs> giving you for all of these years. As a contractor. Yeah, you're going to have to, you know, you're going to have to be on the payroll and you're going to answer to us. And that was a big decision for Putin. And it may or may not have been the right one. It certainly blew up in his face in a way that um, uh, he didn't expect when he said, essentially to the generals, 
okay, you can crack down on Wagner. We don't need them right now. So just to, you know, before we dig into the, you know, winners and losers and all of that. So, you know, Wagner existed in this legal vacuum and it kind of served two purposes, right? One was an instrument of the state with, quote, plausible deniability in places like Syria, the Donbass, Libya, elsewhere, where it could be used to extend uh, Russian influence in places where maybe, you know, they would not want to have the hand of the Russian government totally visible. I think we could say that plausible deniability for Wagner is now no longer really an option henceforth. But it raises the question of of the second part, which is it also was a kind of cash cow for Prigozhin, but people presumably connected to Prigozhin, because a lot of Wagner's operations in other places were funded by access to you know valuable raw materials, uh, diamonds and uh, coal and other extractable raw materials in sub-Saharan Africa and oil in Syria and and other things. Presumably, you know, other cronies, not just Prigozhin, were, were, you know, getting this. And there was this uh, episode where they raided one of the Wagner offices in St. Petersburg and found all these uh, buses stuffed with cash, etc. And false passports. Can you believe this? Yeah, I can imagine. Um, But so... Uh, like what happens to the Wagner operations now in Africa and all of this money? I mean, presumably someone's still going to be wanting to make that money. Is it going to be Prigozhin operating this out of Belarus or, you know, is it only the guys in, in Ukraine who are going to come under the MOD or is it the whole thing? I mean, what, what do we know? Well, we don't know uh, enough. (laughs) That's true of almost any, question that you could ask about this entire uh, affair. Uh, On this question uh, of the future of Wagner in Africa, Sergei Lavrov commented on this, the foreign minister, uh, that, you know, they've been doing extremely good work there. And so we want to have them continue. Whether it will be uh, some Wagner 2.0 uh, which retains the name, but under new management, we don't know. The basic business model that you describe, though, is one that is uh, that the Russians are certainly going to try to preserve, which is they provide palace security, propaganda consultations, uh, various kinds of services of one sort or another, and these states, uh, in exchange for the, that help, uh, give them access to uh, raw materials uh, that uh, pay off all kinds of people back home. I'd be amazed if that set of relationships just disappeared because Prigozhin is denied access to the safe with his passports and all the cash uh, in St. Petersburg. Somebody is going to continue to oversee that part of uh, of Wagner activity. You know, I, I would assume that's correct, but I, I mean, I take a somewhat darker view of Putin's prospects in all this and an only slightly uh, more optimistic read from Prigozhin's point of view. I think, you know, one thing is 
Prigozhin has a, a genuine following because of the way he's run it. That you know, this is a guy who does visit the the wounded in the hospitals. He does pay people. Uh, he pays the families and that sort of thing. And then you know, it it's also the case that this was. I think it's a mistake to think of this as simply a spur of the moment kind of thing. I mean, it and in fact, you know, I think the principals have all said enough to make you think that what's happened, what happened was they were planning this for quite some time. There have been these reports that American intelligence saw it coming. I think the Ukrainians saw this coming. Clearly, the guy who probably founded uh, Wagner, what's his name, uh, Utkin, Dimitri Utkin. sure was part of this. I mean, they, so you have a whole bunch of senior commanders. And, you know, the, the challenge for the regime is, you know, do you try to get rid of Prigozhin? Do you try, if you get rid of Prigozhin, do you have to then get rid of the senior commanders? If you do that, do you still have much of an organization left? I think it gets very squirrely pretty quickly, particularly because it's not entirely clear to me that Lukashenko will really be able to control uh, Prigozhin, who apparently is now already in Belarus. Uh, it's not entirely clear to me that he he will want to, since he may have his his own game. So I, you know, I would have if if you had asked me what would happen if Prigozhin tried something like this, it would have been that he would be dead within you know by by the Monday after the Saturday coup attempt. And I actually wonder if he's going to be able to survive this for some time. And and this leads, I think, to the more substantive question about this, which is. Do we think he would have attempted this if he hadn't thought there was at least going to be tacit support from some people in the security establishment, particularly the FSB, but maybe people in the military as well? And, and that, of course, is last thing I'll say. That's one of the things everybody noticed about this, that they faced no opposition except from the Russian Air Force. Uh, and there were even you know, reports of units going over to them or at least standing aside. So I, you know, I, it seems to me it's going to be a challenge for Putin to keep the goodness, if I can use that word, of Wagner from the point of view of the Russian state while, you know, rubbing out a guy for whom he undoubtedly has considerable distaste. Yeah. Look, about how long this has been in the works, um, I think it's when Putin basically said he was backing the generals, uh, the defense minister and the chief of the general staff in their effort to bring Wagner under their normal regulatory control. And at that point, Prigozhin knew that something basic in his relationship with all of these characters had changed. And that was two weeks ago. Um, I am a little more skeptical than you, uh, Elliot, of the reports of how um, they managed to bring people over to their side. Um, you know, Putin wanted at all costs to avoid uh, open warfare on Saturday. So I don't think anybody gave the off all. Oh, order to stop him. Uh, the idea that he was just winning over people in Rostov, that they were, you know, that essentially the Southern Military District headquarters had been taken by him, seems to me not right. 
essentially people uh, in the military lower levels were waiting for the command from Moscow as to how to behave. And, and I think that in all likelihood, the, the orders were play it cool. We're trying to work this out in a way that doesn't uh, come to shooting because at that point, you're right. Nobody knew whose side anybody was going to be uh, on, but that, uh, you know, to my mind shows that uh, maybe a little more discipline uh, than we have tended to think. It is possible that the entire national security establishment is coming unraveled. Uh, but I, I think the, the events of the past couple of days don't by themselves show that. So let me just offer two, two bits of counter evidence to that. One is it, well, first and foremost, somebody did try to use violence. And there's a reason why half a dozen helicopters and an airborne command and control plane got shot down. I mean, they, you know, and they were probably attacking that column and somebody gave the order for that. They shot down more helicopters than, than the Ukrainians have in their three-week counteroffensive. Yeah. And so there's, uh, that strikes me as significant. The other thing that strikes me as significant is that by all accounts, it seems as though Putin fled Moscow. And that tells me that he must have been really quite, quite fearful and I suppose the last thing, the third thing perhaps is the way I interpret having to use Lukashenko, who is certainly a subordinate figure. He's not quite a puppet, uh, but he's something close to it. And then if, actually, if you listen to Lukashenko's speech that he just gave, it's amazing, where he's basically describing himself as kind of holding Putin's hand, saying, they're there, Vladimir Vladimirovich, you know, everything will be okay. Just trust me to handle this. I mean, it's a, as, as who should say, a chutzpah for uh, somebody who is a client to talk that way to a patron, particularly in that system. So all those make me think that the system was maybe not unraveling completely, but it was really showing very, some very serious cracks. I think what, what you saw was definitely a moment of great strain. And I don't, uh, I don't think Putin is uh, eager to uh, to relive that day, or to uh, have too many of the details of what happened come out. Because in in lots of the ways that you suggest, it isn't going to make him look entirely good. Uh, my only argument is he had a an overriding goal which is to keep this from completely blowing up. And he achieved that goal. And that's, uh, th- that is the main thing that he has got to boast of. Uh, who knows where he was uh, hiding himself uh, in the course of all of this. But I, I-, I think the... Uh, you know, the idea that because, oh, even a few helicopters were shot down, that uh, that this was, you know, a system that was 
you know, showing the potential for, uh, a, you know, complete breakdown. I think that's maybe a little too too strong, and there may be sort of also some signs of resilience in this. The fact that if you know, as uh, as as people say, there's always somebody who doesn't get the uh, uh, who doesn't get the memo. Uh, that's there's no doubt that this is a big big watershed for Putin because his his regime has been shown uh, not to offer the stability that he's always advertised for it. That's his claim, uh, you know, that he has brought prosperity. That's mostly in the past. Uh, He's brought a certain kind of national pride that isn't so confirmed by the uh, uh, results on the battlefield. But above all, he's kind of kept the system together at home. And now that looks bad, too. Uh, How bad and what his ability to uh, rebuild is, we don't know. And whether whether the rebuilding will include him. I mean, he he may lose out in this process. Um, But I think he has some things still uh, sort of going for him, alas. I want to pull on a couple of threads that both of you have raised here, and I want to get into one of the more perplexing, you know, uh, parts of the story. So on Saturday morning, we were treated to the site of two videos, which had all the appurtenances of, you know, kind of hostage videos uh, of General uh, Surovikin and General Alexeyev. Surovikin, who was a favored commander of Prigozhin's uh, and uh, had been the architect of actually one of the brighter military moments of this entire special military operation, which was the very well organized and orchestrated retrograde of Russian forces out of Kherson last fall. And General Alseyev, who is a deputy in the GRU, who presumably has had some kind of patronage role uh, with Prigozhin. Both of them made videos that had the look of being somewhat under duress. They were in the same place, for instance. It appears that they must have been in Rostov at the uh, Southern Military District headquarters, uh, asking him to lay down arms. Yet later, when Prigozhin shows up in Rostov, he's got video amiably chatting with Alexeyev in, in which he is busy bad-mouthing his two favorite targets, Minister of Defense Shoigu and and uh, Chief of the General Staff, uh, uh, General Valery uh, Gerasimov. And Alexeyev says point blank, yeah, you could take those guys. We don't, we don't, you know, care for them at all. So am I wrong, Steve, that Putin now at a minimum faces a very difficult set of choices? Does he now purge all the military, uh, you know, uh, leaders who have had ties to Prigozhin in the past because they are now going to be suspect in some way or some shape or form. Does he replace Gerasimov and, and Shoigu, who have been shown to be relatively unpopular with the Russian troops themselves uh, and who have been total failures? I mean, they have been the architects of this military catastrophe for for, for Putin or 
does is he now because of this kind of forced to stand with them for a while? Uh, you know, I'm sort of reminded a little bit of President George W. Bush, who you know I think very much wanted to replace in the spring of 2006 uh, Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld, but because of the so-called revolt of the generals who came out and attacked Rumsfeld, felt that they had to keep him on for at least four or five months before replacing him after the midterm elections in 2006. So where where are we in, in, in all this? And what are the implications for kind of the stability of, of the regime? And I guess the final question is, you know, uh, the famous Viberian definition of legitimate government is one that maintains a monopoly of violence in the state. Now you've had someone who has executed some violence without the uh, you know authority of the state, and he's done it with some impunity. Does what's the demonstration of effect for that for others? I mean, Prigozhin may have miscalculated, but are there others out there who are saying, "Well, you know, I'm not stupid enough to think I could take Moscow, you know, with five thousand guys, but I could do it better." So I, I just th- throw all that out there for you. In any discussion of Putin like this, I generally quote a Russian friend of mine who's dealt with Putin a lot over the years. And he says, you Westerners who think Putin is uh, very decisive are completely wrong. Putin is very indecisive. He takes every opportunity to postpone decisions. When he doesn't have to choose, he finds every reason to uh, defer. And then when he finally has to choose, when it's unavoidable, he acts impulsively. And this is a relative admirer, (laughs) I should say, of Putin's management style. In the past, when Putin has had to get rid of people, he has preferred to do it uh, gradually, only after the burdens and disadvantages of keeping them on were demonstrated. He doesn't want to look as though his hand is forced. Uh, he, you know, might on that pattern uh, get rid of Shoigu and Gerasimov three, five months from now. Uh, when it doesn't look as though it's in the heat of the moment, he's panicking, but it's much more a careful czar. On your other question about do other people look at this episode and think, okay, I'm not as big a buffoon as um, Prigozhin. I'm going to have some better staff work and advice done for me and careful memo decision memos prepared, and I'm going to know what I'm doing. Uh, Maybe. Um, The problem with that is in Russia today, it's very hard to launch a conspiracy because nobody trusts anyone else. Uh, And so they have all been, you know, people who were kind of players within the national security establishment, within the Kremlin, within the broader Russian elite. uh, They are because of Putin's care and indecisiveness, able to be pretty confident that what they've got, they can keep for a while. But they don't have any confidence that they can form an independent cluster of 
associations, interests, uh, and act uh, to advance those. Uh, there is a kind of paralysis uh, within the system that is perfectly good for Putin, uh, except you know, when his indecision creates this sort of blow up. I mean, I think he probably uh, chose badly in deciding to side with the generals finally against uh, Prigozhin. He, he needs the manpower. He doesn't need the grief. Uh, merely having the formality of contracts put him on a collision course uh, with with Prigozhin that you know ended up in in crisis. Whether others will be inspired by that example or discouraged by it, we're going to have to see. Yeah, I mean, it's true he doesn't fire people by and large, including some real incompetence. But I think you can interpret that either as indecision or, you know, extreme caution because he's, he's aware that, you know, he may be the top shark in the shark tank, but there are a lot of other sharks out there. Whereas on other things, he could be perfectly decisive. I mean, first, he's perfectly decisive about assassinating pl plenty of people, perfectly decisive about launching the Second Chechen War, the uh, Georgia operation, the Crimea operation, the Donbass operation, and of course, this very, very big war. I mean, uh, we'll add Syria, I guess, another minor case. So I think he, he is quite capable of being decisive externally. Those None of those decisions were the mark of an indecisive man. But internally, it may be less indecision than a great deal of caution. And what I wonder is, is this. Look, I, you know, we're all swimming in an informational murk. You know, we don't know. So we're, it's kind of fun to speculate, but we, we don't have a whole lot of data. We can parse it as carefully as we wish. My guess is he probably doesn't have a whole lot of data either. And so he is, I, here's what I suspect, that he's wondering, okay, who else is out there? Why is it that nobody, that the FSB didn't give me a heads up that this was going to happen when the Americans knew it was going to happen? You know, why is it that there wasn't any opposition other than the Air Force? You know, who else is involved in the plot? And I think in that kind of system, you know, the, the paranoia may be unjustified, but it'll be there. And, and what, you know, and, and let me turn this into a question um, to you, Steve, but also Eric, to you as well, you know, is part of the result of this that the paranoia gets ratcheted up a lot because, you know, he feels he might quite literally be looking down the barrel of a gun or looking at a Novichuk uh, cocktail. And so therefore he begins acting more decisively internally, purging people, killing people. And that, in turn, sets off a dynamic in the system, which really becomes unpredictable. So I, I put that to you as a hypothesis and just to solicit uh, both of your reactions. Putin is going to have to find a way to convey that he's back in charge uh, and that the system is going to regain some of the normal balance uh, and functioning that made it possible for him over many years to say, you see, I brought you stability. It is uh, possible that he will, in doing that, become too vengeful, 
too bloody, too prepared to cast off uh, past alliances uh, and uh, create a kind of uh, cluster of enemies that he didn't have to make. Uh, people who were prepared to be on his side. I, as I say, I think that's possible, but it isn't really the Putin style. The Putin style is much more uh, deliberate. You know, you say cautious and I say indecisive, <laughs> but those are, those are, um, uh, those are adjectives that fit the case broadly. Uh, he has over 20 plus years in power, basically run a pretty bloodless dictatorship with some nasty exceptions, but, but with few enough of them that people who are prepared to play ball can be confident that they're not going to be the next target uh, of, uh, you know, a, a throat cutting. And that, it seems to me, is the obvious strategy that uh, his people are going to be advising him uh, to pursue. At the same time that he tries to combine it with what I described at the beginning of this answer, and that is showing that he is in charge. And the the trick for him in the next few months is going to have to be to try to reestablish confidence that people have that he's not a madman, uh, that he's not going to be too vengeful, that he's not going to be too cruel, and that he's capable of exercising real leadership. And that's not the easiest thing to do, but there are a lot of people who want him to to succeed in that because this is a very corrupt government in, from which a lot of people benefit and from uh, and the benefits of which they might think they'd lose if, uh, uh, if it were really overturned. I have a couple of thoughts on this. One is, in terms of paranoia, uh, he's got to be deeply concerned by this. He will become aware, if he's not already, of the reports we've seen in the Western press about U.S. intelligence having known of this for days in advance. Uh, we also have, of course, the President of the United States apparently trying to reassure him that we had no hand in this. I'm not quite sure what he'll make of that. Um, I'm sure he'll interpret that as an indication that we had some hand in it, uh, because otherwise, why would we be protesting so much about this? He will probably see reports that the Ukrainians saw this coming. There have been reports about Prigozhin having had some kinds of contacts with Ukrainian intelligence during the Bakhmut campaign. He'll have to wonder about that, but mostly he'll have to wonder about how come my intelligence guys didn't warn me this was coming. I mean, the difference between the Saturday morning Putin and the Monday afternoon Putin was very striking, I thought. I mean, he looked very concerned on Saturday morning. I would say even a little frightened. Um, Monday, you know, angry. Uh, Monday, when he was having chairing the meeting of the Security Council, wasn't quite as you know stark as the meeting a year ago. You know, with uh, Gerasimov and Shoigu at the end of the football field long table, but the Security Council was about a half a table away from him. 
which suggests, you know, uh, you know, that uneasy, you know, um, lies the head that wears the crown. And that's got to all increase because of all this. As I said, he's going to have to start going through lists of people who he thinks are, uh, you know, whether he wants to replace people or not, he's going to have to be worried about people's loyalty. But the second thing is, you know, does, will he have in a system where lying to the higher ups has become institutionalized? Will he have the actual information to be able to walk the very fine line that Steve has sketched out here? I I was struck by, because I know you've read this too, Steve, the transcript uh, two weeks ago of his meeting with the military bloggers, in which he, you know, uh, is asked about the Ukrainian counteroffensive and provides numbers of, you know, equipment destroyed which I think is larger in some cases than Ukraine's holdings of some of those, uh, some of those items, you know, tanks and armored personnel carriers, et cetera. He seems to really believe that he had negotiated a deal with the Ukrainians in Istanbul, uh, which the Ukrainians then, you know, at the direction of the United States rejected, which is, you know, totally fanciful as far as I can, I can tell. So, I mean, I just wonder how, connected to the real reality he is, you know, as Steve, as you say, after 20 years of power in which this system is kind of, uh, and then, you know, sort of exacerbated by the, you know, isolation of COVID, uh, he's become so cosseted that, you know, uh, his ability to actually navigate all this, I am not certain of at all. Look, Putin has given plenty of reason to uh, wonder about uh, his continued uh, capacity to do the job over the past couple of years. Uh, I mean, there's hardly a better argument that I know of for term limits <laughs> than, than Putin's recent record. Uh, and it may be that he will uh, not be able to square the circle that uh, I've been saying he has to. Uh, has to handle in some way. Um, There are, what I'm saying is this, on Saturday, on Friday and Saturday, Putin faced the possibility of a much more potent challenge to his rule uh, than he had ever faced. And not just because somebody who had a ran a private military company was able to uh, put his guys on the road to Moscow, but because a whole series of different dissatisfactions with Putin, with the war, with corruption, with the, uh, the way in which the Siloviki operate to serve their own uh, interests. Uh, all of those had the potential, if Prigozhin had uh, been better prepared and more strategic and more thoughtful to produce a, an even deeper crisis for the regime than the one uh, that we've seen. Um, in the end, 
you know, it may be, I mean, I, I hate to disappoint you guys because I, uh, it's a disappointment for me too. You know, it's possible that this will turn out to be a kind of inoculation for Putin uh, that will actually make it easier for him to cope with some of these problems in the, in the future, because this potential challenge, set of challenges to him was embodied in such an unlikely uh, challenger. Uh, I think there is no way of knowing what's in his head, uh, no way for us at this distance to know really exactly what happened. But I'm struck by how much better things look for him on Tuesday than they did on Saturday morning. I, I guess I, it's, that seems to me kind of a low bar. I mean, yes, survival is better than death. But which he may have been looking at, but I can't see how he could possibly think that, you know, he's in anything remotely like a good position because you know the damage that Prigozhin did was you know there's the the sheer the example of it the you know everybody saw the pictures of you know people in Rostov cheering them on and all that, but also on on his way out and this and it hasn't stopped yet. Um, Prigozhin is delivering this indictment of the war and not actually not just of the conduct of the war, but of the war itself, which I thought was very interesting. And I'll, I'll, and I'll just throw in one parenthetical about that. It, it is, it has been striking to me that even though, you know, Prigozhin is a brute and guilty of war crimes and atrocities, he's sort of gone out of his way to be almost respectful of the Ukrainians um, in some of his rhetoric in terms of their fighting capacity and, and all that sort of stuff, which sort of makes you think that he wants, you know, he may have had some notion of positioning himself as the guy who can, you know, make a piece of the brave, uh, that kind of thing. And I think particularly at a time when the Ukrainians are on the offensive and they are beginning to have some successes, you know, this could be quite dark. Last thing I would, I would just say on, on, on the, on Putin, you know, um, I, I what I've been wondering about is what what are the cumulative effects of over twenty years in power, increasing physical isolation, you know, probably increasing sycophancy, and age. He's the guy's in his early seventies. Hey, 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 hey! Watch that. <laughs> uh, hey. Listen, Gramps, I'm that way too, uh, but but I don't think either of us are really up to run uh, Russia. No, and, I definitely am not. Um, you know, and so I I think you add all those up together. I, I well, who knows? Maybe we'll we'll probably never find out. But I would be surprised if you you know you end up with a fairly impaired decision maker. The war itself shows you uh, you've got an impaired decision maker. Uh, this is 100%, 1,000% is what I typically say, his war. And this was uh, on the, a, a choice made on his part on the basis of really a combination of completely nutty uh, ideas, a, a kind of roll of the dice that was utterly unnecessary and utterly inconsistent with the kind of measured, balanced, um, good czar style leadership that he's tried to claim for himself. So there's no, you know, there's no case that, and I'm certainly not trying to make it, that Putin, you know, his, 
his normal MO is good leadership. Uh, he is completely capable of failing to manage the challenges that he's got after the coup. But I think it is possible that a combination of factors in Russian society, uh, in the system that he's created, will help him out of it. You know, the fact, you know, as people always say about an autocrat of this sort, you can't depose him without an alternative. And fortunately for Putin, he got offered up a really defective alternative. Uh, and now he may, uh, he may benefit from the uh, stabilization that follows the, uh, uh, this enormous shock. So this follows in the train of what you've just been saying, Steve. And one of the uh, first phone calls he got was from my old friend, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, who had his own, you know, uh, close run experience with a coup in, in 2016. And of course, I'm not sure what uh, advice Erdogan gave in that phone call, but what Erdogan did was, you know, jail 100,000 people and, you know, create all sorts of repression, uh, cashiered all sorts of general officers, you know, et cetera. So, you know, that's one model Putin might follow. But I, you know, to pick up on what you were saying earlier, you know, Prigozhin's uh, rant uh, before he started on Friday was to, as you say, it's, you know, denounce the war and kind of create this right-wing nationalist, but reformist, anti-corruption sort of a mix, which is, I mean, I think potentially very powerful if someone more competent were to pick it up. And so does this create, on one hand, an opening for, again, someone else to say, I can be that alternative, whether it's Patrushev or somebody else? And second, you know, the Russian troops on the front were following all of this on Telegram as it played out in real and on their cell phones, talking to people back in Russia as it played out in in real time. And you can't help but think that some of this is going to be resonate, you know, uh, resonating with these, uh, particularly with the mobilized uh, troops and the conscripts, not the, you know, uh, contract forces who are more professional. And, you know, do they want to be the ones to die for these grasping oligarchs? And, you know, over time, that could be extremely corrosive. You know, Putin himself raised the 1917 analogy in his speech on Saturday morning. And, of course, it was mutinies in the army like this that led ultimately to the collapse of the Russian army and everything that followed. We have other examples. We were talking in the green room before we came on about the fact that the Foros coup in 1991 against Gorbachev failed. Gorbachev was returned to power, but it exposed the weaknesses of the Soviet Union. And four months later, the Soviet Union was gone. And so was Gorbachev. You know, in 1917, Kerensky's provisional government faced a rebellion uh, from Kornilov that you know, ended up uh, so weakening the uh, the provisional government that a handful of Bolsheviks in October, you know, a few months later, 
were able to take over the whole country and establish the Soviet Union. I think we sometimes fail to remember how close run a thing that was and how small a group of people it was that took over this giant ramshackle state and somehow constructed the Soviet Union out of it. So I I just throw that out there, you know, um, as we close, you know, what are your thoughts on that? Putin is at least as burdened by uh, uh, interest in historical analogies as the three of us. Uh, He definitely is thinking to himself, oh, my God, am I Gorbachev? Am I Nicholas II? Uh, You know, which of the various uh, czars or pretenders in the past who were, you know, stabbed or betrayed by this or that conspiracy? Am I really? Um, So he's he's got that on his mind. He's got a tough road ahead for him. But just to compare him to Gorbachev for a second, the lost legitimacy of the communist system was a a the work of years before the coup and suddenly people woke up and thought to themselves wow we just don't need to uh, accept this system and we've got an alternative uh, we've got Boris Yeltsin we've got Andrei Sakharov we've got all of the people who were in the streets uh, we've got the the military who are prepared to uh, protect the alternatives. Uh, and we have an elite that's not really willing to stand up uh, for Gorbachev or continue to work with him and all of his people who were in his inner circle in the in the last days were starting to write their memoirs and look for Western publishers and look for uh, you know, sabbaticals in the, in the West, and they were um, not going to stand by him. Putin has a somewhat stronger hand now. He's got a, 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 an elite that is, uh, is divided, but is, uh, does not have anything like a Yeltsin challenger to him. Uh, if you leave aside Navalny, who's conveniently in prison, uh, he doesn't have public opinion uh, in increasingly going over to the side of, you know, desiring a new uh, a new system. Uh, you know, Putin has for years and years shoved in the face of people who are dissatisfied with his regime, his poll numbers, his ratings. And he's, you know, it will be very interesting to see whether in the next weeks you see any kind of hiccup or you see some kind of uh, resurgence of those numbers. You know, those are not always the most trustworthy polls, but Putin is going to be looking for little shreds of legitimacy that he can uh, use to say, you know, I used to be Mr. Stability and I'm going to be Mr. Stability again. Now, does he, you know, he can, reinv- you know, try to reinvent himself. There are questions that, policy questions that go along with that, that are not just how does he handle Shoigu and Gerasimov? Does he fire them? Because 
frankly, the three of us don't care what he does there. Uh, but is he more inclined to escalate in Ukraine? Is he more inclined to seek a settlement or just some way out of this mess? You know, those are those are big questions that do concern uh, uh, other countries that should be discussed uh, two weeks from now in in Vilnius uh, that are, you know, matters of high policy for uh, for Western governments. And they're going to try to figure out uh, how to protect themselves against uh, all of those uh, possibilities. Frankly, I think it shouldn't be ruled out that there can be a kind of uh, nasty uh, aftermath to this in, in the war, uh, so that the argument for doing more for Ukraine is greater after Prigozhin, uh, but, but not because we're sure that Putin is weak. Uh, we just, we need to be looking out for our interests and figuring out how Putin in his trapped way uh, may decide to uh, to lash out. Uh, but there are, uh, you know, in the weeks ahead, we are going to see more abuse of historical analogies to make <laughs> than we've committed case here. or another. And I'm going to be doing it myself. <laughs> I, I was going to uh, say, we, we, we at Shield of the Republic tend to be at the forefront of that. <laughs> Yeah, well, look, uh, what what else are we going to do uh, in the absence of any real knowledge of <laughs> what, uh, what happened? And those analogies, they help us to think think about the problem, but they don't by themselves give us answers. Absolutely. Well, Steve, this is this has been great having you on Shield of the Republic. I appreciate you taking the time to join us today. This story is going to continue, so we're going to probably have to have you back at some point to. Um, go over, you know, the, you know, future twists and turns in the ongoing story of Vladimir Putin. And some of us will have to eat their words. (laughs) (laughs) Undoubtedly. Thanks, Steve. If you enjoyed this episode of Shield of the Republic, please drop us a line at shieldofthepublic at gmail.com. And don't forget to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts from.